Well, good evening, Camel Church. How are we doing tonight? Good. Awesome. Who's getting into the Christmas season? Who's got their Christmas shopping done for the year? Show of hands. Oh, the really organized people. Who has not started their Christmas shopping yet? There we go. The people that like to live on the edge. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, we're jumping um, into a little bit of a different message tonight. So um, if you've got your Bible with you, I need you to turn to not the book of Acts. Instead, I need you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. As uh, Tonight we're actually kicking off a, a little two-part mini-series uh, called Unwrapping Christmas. Uh, and look, if you need help finding the book of Luke, it's really easy. Go and find the book of Acts, uh, which I'm sure you all know how to do at this point, and then just turn back um, a couple of pages. You'll get there eventually, I promise. Uh, and look, honestly, I've actually cheated a little bit when it comes to tonight's message, because you know, I was praying and contemplating what text to bring for the, uh, this mini Christmas series and uh, what God's doing, what he's saying. And, um, you know, I, I realized I've actually gotten really used to preaching from the book of Acts. Uh, I, I'm used to the genre, the language, the, the structure that, that it's just set out in. Uh, my text is chosen for me every week, so it uh, makes my job a little bit easier in that regard. Uh, so when, I, when it came to picking a text for tonight's message, um, I may or may not have gone with the gospel according to Luke because Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, so uh, we'll all feel nice at home tonight. Uh, But but really, the idea of something becoming normal for us, uh, something becoming just an an ordinary thing we do, just a part of our rhythms, uh, I actually think it fits in really uh, appropriately to the idea of Christmas. Uh, You've all been here before. You've been at a a church service during December. You, You know how the Christmas narrative plays out. Uh, you know, it's Mary and Joseph, there's some angels, uh, they travel to, to Bethlehem, there's, there's no room in the inn, there's, there's wise men and sheep and shepherds, and then little baby Jesus, meek and mild for us all to celebrate, right? Uh, and we can hear this story so often, so many times that it can sort of become just that, a story. Something we, we know what happens, we, we listen to this, the services in, in December and then we tick it off and we get on with the festive season. Uh, But but the truth of the matter is that this moment in history, when when Jesus Christ came and and, and took on flesh and dwelt among us, it is just an an absolutely awesome and amazing moment. Uh, That that it changes not just the uh, the truth of our faith, but the entire trajectory of of all of humanity from that moment on. Uh, And so even though we we hear the same story every year, um, I actually think it's really important. Because even if the story doesn't change, the truth of the matter is we do. And so when, when we um, dig into the story, it actually has some new truth to speak into us each and every year. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to jump into the Christmas narrative. We're going to pull it apart and see how it applies to us today in 2023 in Kenmore. Does that sound good? Awesome. So uh, if we've all found Luke chapter 2, and if you haven't, you can just give up now. It's going to be on the screen. It's okay. Um, here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Uh, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. All right, so let me, let me just stop this. So again, we know the story, right? We, we know how it plays out. We know what's going to happen. But what I don't want you to miss in this moment, I, I really, I don't want you to miss the reality of what's happening here. 
uh, that this, this isn't a, a story that uh, took place once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This, uh, this isn't a fairy tale or a movie or a story. These are real people dealing with real problems and, and real issues in their life. Uh, and honestly, when you actually take the time and you walk through what's happening in the Christmas narrative, honestly, the, the first Christmas, it was a mess. Uh, I mean, Mary... I actually think we forget this. Mary was a a teenage girl who fell pregnant outside of marriage Uh, in a a time and a culture where if you did that, uh, the consequence wasn't just shame, it wasn't just condemnation. Often they killed you. Like there were uh, rules in place that you got stoned to death if that was the sort of behavior you partook in. Uh, So, you know, she's just minding her own business. She's just doing life. She's uh, preparing for her wedding, which is, uh, you know, a couple months down the line when all of a sudden this angel steps into her life and throws everything into disarray. Uh, And the angel turns to her and says, Mary, you're going to be a mom. And not just that, that this child you're going to give birth to, uh, it it is going to be the saviour of the entire world. The Messiah that your people have been waiting for for thousands of years. I mean, how in the world do you actually stop and grapple with that as like a teenage girl? And Joseph, look, look the more I read through the Christmas narrative, the more I actually sympathize with all that Joseph has to go through. Uh, and maybe it's just because now, you know, I've gotten engaged, I've been married, I've, um, my wife's pregnant, so I've gone through all those, uh, those key life moments. But honestly, Joseph has to do them in like all the wrong order, right? And really, what do you do when like your fiance walks up to you and says, hey, Joe, I'm pregnant and, and, and it's not yours? <laughs> I mean, like, I think Joseph asks the very, very common sense question like, okay, well, Whose is it then? And Mary is forced in that moment with a a straight face to say, it's God's. (laughs) Like like seriously, if you actually had to walk through that, what I think you you would say in that moment is, okay, either my fiance has gone absolutely insane uh, or else she's just cheating on me and she's really bad at coming up with lies. Um, So Joseph somehow deals with that. Like we don't get a single word of complaint from the guy. He's just like, cool, um, and he's like, okay, I'm going to divorce you quietly. I'm going to be really kind. I'm not going to get you murdered like you're supposed to, according to the law. Uh, but then another angel appears and he's like, no, Joseph, you need to, you need to marry this girl. This is from God. Um, and he goes with it and he just follows along with this whole crazy story. Uh, and if that wasn't messy enough, this whole census thing happens. Uh, and somehow they need to make their way uh, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And, and I don't know why, but for some reason, it only dawned on me this week how big of a journey that is. Uh, that the distance from uh, Nazareth through to Bethlehem, it's 150 kilometers. Uh, so to put that into context for you, that's the distance if you were to walk from here in Kenmore all the way through to Nusa. And Mary is heavily pregnant at this time. Um, like my, my, my wife is, is currently very heavily pregnant and she loves when I talk about her in sermons. Uh, but it is logistically difficult enough for us to, to get her in the car and drive to church at the moment. So I can't even fathom how in the world I would walk from here to the sunny coast with her. Um, and before you say to me, you know what, Liam, she had a donkey, it would have been fine. That's a lot easier than walking. Uh, I thought that too. And then I read through the story and nowhere in the text does it say she gets a donkey. Uh, so sorry to ruin your Christmas 
image you've got in your head, uh, but they were dirt poor, so uh, odds are they, they walked the full distance by themselves. So it, it's messy. It's real, it's full of confusion and doubt and uncertainty and just like things going on that they don't have control of. Uh, and in the midst of all that, in, in a town that is far away from home, that, that wasn't welcoming to them, that they didn't really know, we're told while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Church, that is a messy situation. It's real, it's gritty, it's full of heartache and confusion, and yet it is into that context that the Son of God steps into the world. That Jesus is born not in a castle, not in a palace surrounded by royalty and wealth or prestige and power. He is born to a couple of poor teenage parents who have no idea what they're doing. That is the first Christmas. And again, I think what happens is uh, we've heard through this, this story so many times that, that, that yes, we, we miss the reality of it. We miss the mess of it. We miss like the, the, just everything that's going on. But at the same time, I actually think we miss the, we miss the enormity of what is actually happening. Uh, that this isn't just another ordinary day. This isn't just the first Christmas. It's not just a great scene to have plastered on like your Christmas cards. That what is happening in this moment is the entire, the fundamental nature of the entire universe is changing forever from this point forward. That 2,000 years ago in a stable in Bethlehem, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead took on flesh and became a man. That the creator became the created, the infinite became the finite, the invisible became visible and the eternal stepped into time. The church, the nativity scene is, is actually a concept so laughable and inconceivable that if it were not given to us in Scripture, I do not think we would ever believe it. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to grab a hold of these two tensions. The, the, the reality of Christmas Day, the, the mess of it, the, the fact that, that Jesus was fully human, and then the enormity of what is happening on that day. The, the fact that Jesus is fully God and yet somehow he's humbling himself and taking on flesh. And so in order for us to do that, I want to, um, I want to dive into uh, one of the most theologically uh, dense and rich verses in all of Scripture, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, because what um, Luke has walked us through uh, narratively in the Christmas story, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's going to actually walk through it theologically in Philippians 2. Uh, so if you're still looking for the book of Luke, give up now. Uh, turn to Philippians 2 instead, um, and we're going to be picking up at verse 5. Uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the church, Christmas is, is not about a helpless baby, being accident, accidentally being born in a stable. Uh, it, it's not about the shepherds or the wise men or, um, you know, a star or Mary and Joseph. It's about God taking on flesh, humbling himself and stepping into the mess of this world. 
and ultimately stepping into the mess of our lives to do something about it. And so tonight, that's what I wanted to talk about. I'm going I'm to pick apart this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, um, line by line. And I want to talk about what does it mean for God to be fully man? What does it mean for, for, uh, for Jesus to be fully man? What does it mean for Jesus to be fully God? And, and importantly, what, what does this mean for how we relate to him? And, and ultimately, what I want to show you guys tonight is that if you can grab a hold of this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, that, that God became man and dwelt among us, it will fundamentally shift how you interact with that God. All right, so let's roll back a bit and go back to Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, so the, the phrase here that Paul uses for form of God, uh, in Greek, it's morphe theo. And, and it's a little bit of a, a difficult um, phrase for us to translate because uh, normally if I say form to you, you think shape or, or structure or some sort of um, just outward appearance. Uh, but, but morphe in Greek, it's more of a philosophical term that means an outward expression of an inner essence. So when what's on the outside, when what's on the external matches to the true nature of what is inside. Uh, so the, the closest parallel I could draw to you is this. So it's just a little bit of an example. Uh, imagine I was watching a game of rugby, uh, which sadly I've not done for a while. I don't have stand sports, so um, we, can, we can all grieve that loss. But uh, if I was watching a game of rugby and there, there was a player that had a really good game, what I might say in that moment uh, and it's obviously a South African player because they're the best rugby players. Uh, what I might say to you uh, is, is that that rugby player's form was outstanding. Uh, and, and what I mean when I say that is their agility, their strength, their ball handling, their strategic decisions on the field, all of those things were an outward expression of their true inner uh, ability to play the game of rugby with excellence. And so what's happening when Paul says Jesus was in the form of God, the, the morphe theo, what he's saying is the outward expression of, of who Jesus is, uh, both before and after the incarnation, um, the, how he interacted with the world, the things he did, the words he said, the, the miracles and his healings, uh, even his death on the cross, they're all an outward expression of his true and divine nature, the very nature of God. Uh, that the author of Hebrews will, will put it this way in Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, Colossians 1, Paul will say it this way, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and in him the fullness of God was pleasing to dwell. The church, Jesus is fully God. He, he is in his nature God. He's not part God. He's not part of God. He's not like God. He's not godly. He is God, that Jesus is God. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, so made of the same stuff and equal in both power and glory. And that is who Jesus is. And what that means is all the divine characteristics of God, the, the things that, that make him be God, well, Jesus has and always will have those same characteristics. Uh, that Jesus is immutable, he's unchangeable, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. 
Uh, Jesus is all-knowing, he's all-present, he's all-good. Uh, Jesus is all-holy, Hebrews 7:26. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is all-powerful. Uh, John 1:3. all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1:16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That church, everything that has ever existed and will ever exist, it, it, it is in creation because Jesus willed that it would be so. That right now everything is being held together because Jesus is holding it in place. That the reason your heart is still beating, that the reason your brain is sending impulses down to your lungs to keep air flowing in your body, the reason gravity is staying on and we're not floating away, that the reason the earth is staying in orbit around the sun is simply because Jesus holds everything together. And that Jesus is eternal. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, John 17, Jesus says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this is really, really important for the entirety of the Christmas narrative. Because Jesus does not rock up on the scene at the first Christmas day. That his existence as a person did not begin in a stable 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Uh, that Jesus predates eternity. He has always existed. That before there was a beginning, Jesus was. And, and what that also means is that uh, the Christmas story is not God's response to our sin. Uh, that, that it's not like God saw everything going wrong and is like, okay, well, I, I see your sin problem and I raise you a Jesus. That before the foundation of the world, God the Father had already predecided that he was gonna send Jesus, his only son, on a rescue mission for the sake of the whole world. That church, Jesus is God. And honestly, what I think can happen is we can get so caught up in the intimacy of the nativity scene. So, so caught up in the humanity of Jesus Christ that we lose sight of his divinity. And don't hear me wrong, I am all for baby Jesus, meek and mild. I'm all for Jesus being your best friend and someone you can go to in times of trouble. Yes, and amen to all of that. But just because Jesus took on the form of man does not mean that he was not fully God. And yet despite that, Jesus did not count his divinity as something to be grasped onto. And I just love that, that word there for grasp. In the, in the Greek, it's um, harpagmos, and it means to seize something by force or for selfish reasons, to hold onto something and exploit it for your own advantage. That, that Jesus knew from before time that he was the fullness of God, and yet he chose not to hold on to that. Uh, Philippians 2.7, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And the word there, form, is the same thing, the, the morphe of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, and just to give you one more Greek word tonight, uh, the word therefore emptied himself is this word kenu. Uh, and, and it literally, it does mean to pour yourself out or to empty something out. Uh, but metaphorically, it can be used when someone gives up status, status or privilege 
or denies themselves authority. In other words, Jesus had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, that all power, all authority, all dominion was his forever and ever, and yet he chose to give those things up freely. He emptied himself of those things in order to become an ordinary Jewish man. That while he had every right to stay where he was in eternity in the presence of God the Father forever, his love drove him to a position of weakness. See, church, while it is important that we understand the, the, the nature of Jesus' divinity, we, we need to hold that intention with the fact that he is also fully man. Uh, that, that Jesus had a, a normal human birth and human genealogy like me and you. Uh, that, that, that's, again, one of the reasons why the Christmas narrative is so important. Uh, in fact, it's why um, in, in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus' genealogy uh, it begins, sorry, so Matt, uh, the Christmas accounts begin with Jesus' genealogy. Uh, because he, the, Matthew is saying, look, the, the nature of Jesus' humanity can be tracked back through to real human people. Uh, people like King David and Abraham and ultimately all the way back to Adam. And look, just, just a fun little side fact, it can also be tracked back through really dodgy people like Bathsheba and Rahab and Tamar. So like, if you want some interesting Christmas reading of the next week, uh, go away and read their, their stories in the Bible. That all three of them are listed in Jesus' genealogy and, and all of them, like there's sin, there's brokenness, there's, uh, there's heartache in their story. And yet God works through the mess of their lives to, to bring about, about uh, no, not only like a, a good outcome in their lives, but ultimately the birth of Jesus. Uh, that Jesus had a human body, uh, that he wasn't a ghost or like a transparent being or a, um, some sort of spirit. He was real flesh and blood human. Uh, that he experienced growth. Luke 2.40, the child grew and became strong. He experienced hunger. After uh, fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry, no duh. Uh, he thirsted, John 19.28. He grew tired, John 4.6. And ultimately he died a, a physical death, just like everybody else. That Jesus had a human mind. Uh, and this is where things get a little bit confusing because that, that very human mind had limitations to it. Uh, that he had to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Uh, that he had to be taught to do things like walk and talk and how to ride a donkey. Um, and actually just think about this. There was a very brief moment in, in the history of humanity where Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was walking around in dirty nappies because he hadn't been taught how to use the toilet yet. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus had to learn obedience. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't even know what that means because he clearly can't have been disobedient and, and still have been Jesus, uh, but somehow he grew in his capacity to obey. Uh, that Jesus experienced human temptation uh, and not in a fake way, not in an artificial way. Like, I think sometimes we look at Jesus and say, oh, you know what? He wasn't really tempted because he was the son of God. But no, J Jesus uh, was Lord to sin just like we, we experience in our lives. Uh, he felt the temptation to lie when he thought he could get away with it. Uh, he felt the temptation to, to cheat if no one was looking or to um, do something that he knew was wrong. He, he felt that, that, that tension in his life. It's just that unlike us, he never sinned that Jesus is fully man. And, and honestly, church, that, that should blow your mind, right? That, that God actually took on himself those characteristics. 
he, he wasn't faking his humanity. He wasn't um, like controlling some sort of meat puppet or um, inhabiting some other body. Like God actually added to his divinity, humanity. He, he actually became a, a, a real human being who experienced all of those things. Uh, that, that Saint Augustine says when he's um, describing just how enormous and amazing this moment is, he writes this. The maker of man was made man, that he who might be ruler of the stars would nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain of living water might thirst, that the light of the world might sleep, that the way be tied on its journey, the truth be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation of the world be suspended on wood that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and ultimately, that life itself might die. That church, what happened on the first Christmas day, it is incredible. It is mind-blowing. It is such an impossible thing for us to fully grasp the magnitude of it. That Jesus was fully God, and yet he humbled himself and took on flesh, and now is fully man forever. And I can tell by, by the excited gleam in all of your eyes that that's not necessarily landing in, in such an exciting way in your life. And look, um, I'm fully aware that, that you can hear all that tonight and you can go, yep, Liam, that's, that's sort of exciting. It sounds pretty cool. But honestly, what do I do with it? <laughs> like, it's Christmas. It's, it's been a long year. I'm tired, I'm, I'm worn out. I've got like three Christmas events in the next week and I want to attend about half of them. Uh, There's tension in my family. The budget's a bit tighter than I'd like this year. My kids are stressing me out. What do I do with the fact that Jesus is both fully man and fully God? And look, I actually thought long and hard about this question this week. Um, And my first version of this message, I had all the correct technical theological textbook answers for I was going to tell you that uh, because of the incarnation, God can be known. uh, That, you know, uh, before Jesus rocks up, there's sort of this system where God is really distant, uh, that he's sort of too other, too foreign, too too, um, infinite for us to actually have a relationship with him, that we can't really know him. And yet because he took on flesh, there's now um, a, a possibility of us having a relationship with him, of us sort of comprehending who God is. Uh, I was going to tell you that uh, because of the incarnation, true humanity can be seen, uh, that we can actually look at Jesus as he lived this life and say, oh, that's what humanity is supposed to be like. That's what it looks to live a life free of sin and brokenness. And that gives us an example to, to sort of follow after and shows us what, what humanity is supposed to be. And there were a bunch of other textbook answers I was going to say, but honestly, I, I was reflecting this week on the first Christmas and just how messy it truly was and how much brokenness and confusion and frustration there was going on. And what I think the heart of what we need to take away from the incarnation tonight is that, honestly, God is not afraid of your mess. He's not afraid of your dysfunction. God's not looking at your brokenness in your life, the sin, the pain, the hardships you're walking through and going, you know what, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to get into that mess. I am too holy, too, too godly, too pure to, to ever come near that thing in your life. 
that God is not afraid of your mess. See, one of the biggest mistakes I think we've made when it comes to Christmas, it's not Santa Claus. Uh, it's not the commercialization of the whole thing, although it's not great. Uh, it's not even the fact that people write Xmas instead of Christmas. Um, and, and I don't know why we get so hung up about that, honestly. Uh, I, I think the biggest mistake we've made when it comes to Christmas is how much we've sanitized the nativity scene. I mean, when you actually picture this moment in, in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, what's the image in your head? Is it something that looks like your grandma's nativity set? Um, you know, it's clean, it smells nice, it's a quiet night and maybe there's some faint orchestral music in the background of a silent night playing. Uh, Joseph is well shaven, Mary's got her hair done up and her makeup done. Uh, the three wise men are standing there in their corner with their, their full regal attire and their presents ready to go. Never mind the fact that they don't rock up for another two years in the story and there's probably more than three of them. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, your token donkey and sheep in the corner, just so you know it's a stable. Uh, but they're clean, they're quiet, they're minding their own business. And then you've got the shepherds who, who rock up. Uh, you know, despite the fact that they work all day with dirty, stinky animals and they've come right off the job, they are clean, they are well presented, they, they are um, everything you'd expect them to be. Uh, and then in the center of it all, with a perfect spotlight shining down from the roof and an angelic glow around Jesus. Uh, there he is in the middle of it all, perfectly lit up, perfectly clean and sleeping quietly, just like a good saviour should. Honestly, it's so fake. It's so disingenuous. I mean, firstly, it's a stable, right? Uh, so there's mud, there's hay, and all the other animal byproducts that um, come when you keep animals in a room for a long period of time. The sheep probably smell, the donkeys are making a noise, like it's not a clean space. Uh, Mary and Joseph, they've just come off the back of a 150 kilometer hike. Uh, so I imagine they're pretty exhausted. Uh, there's been no room for them in town, so they've been knocking on doors and they haven't found anywhere. There's probably bags under their eyes. They're, they're looking a little bit tired. Uh, and Mary has just given birth. And look, I'm still this side of our first, the end of our first pregnancy, but I'm not expecting that to be like a nice, clean, tranquil event. I imagine Mary is covered in sweat. I imagine her hair is plastered to her face, that there's blood and just stuff everywhere. It is a mess. And Jesus, he's probably crying. He's laying in hay. And essentially what is a food trough meant for animals? So, so maybe there's like bits of animal food stuck to him and he's, he's covered in like blood and amniotic fluid that honestly, Jesus did not step into the world into a perfectly manicured and picturesque scene. Again, he stepped into an environment that was messy, was real, was, was dirty, was, was full of pain and heartache. And that a perfectly holy, perfectly good and clean and pure God stepped into a world that was broken, depraved, dirty and sinful. Uh, to, to quote Sandy this week, who's evidently far wiser than I will ever be. Um, if I could go my whole life without stepping in poo, I would. <laughs> and yet church, honestly, that's exactly what God did. He stepped into the brokenness of the world for us. That Jesus did not have to be born into a manger. He didn't have to come and become a man. 
that he did not have to be step, he did not have to step into the brokenness of this world to be surrounded by sin and, and just the, the muck of everything around us. And yet because of his great love for us, that's exactly what he chose to do. And look, honestly, I, I don't know what your mess and dysfunction looks like this, this Christmas season. I don't know what pain you're going through right now that, that's, that's sitting on your heart and, and distracting you and keeping you occupied. I don't, know, I don't know if maybe it's a family situation or a prodigal son or just relational conflict. And maybe you've been praying and praying and praying and it's like no matter how much you pray, things just feel like they're getting worse and worse and worse. And honestly, it looks like this year for Christmas, you're not gonna be doing Christmas with that person or that group, whatever it is. Maybe it's financial and you look at like your bills on one hand and uh, your bank account on the other and you take into account the, the interest rates and the inflation and the cost of living and it's like, you're trying to make the two meet up but it's, it's just not working. And, and honestly, right now, you're just in a situation where you're trying to work up the courage to go tell your kids that, you know what, you're not doing Christmas presents this year. Um, maybe it's a health thing. And honestly, you're not even worried right now about Christmas gifts because you're just trying to work out how you're gonna split your time on Christmas Day between visiting them in the hospital and doing Christmas with the rest of your family. I don't know what it is, church. But what I can tell you is if God would step down from the perfection of heaven, that Jesus would leave the right hand of the Father where he has existed for all eternity, and he would step into a lowly stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, then he can step into the mess of your situation this season. And honestly, as Christians, I think that the trap we fall into is we start acting like we have to have it all worked out, that our life has to be perfect, things have to be all clean, all our sin has to be dealt with before we can actually invite God into our lives. The church, the nativity scene shows us that is not the case that Mary and Joseph did not have to sweep the place before they could give birth to Jesus. That Jesus actually wants you mess and all. He wants to be invited into that part of your, of your life, of your heart, where, where it, it hurts, where there's brokenness, where, where you don't want anyone else into that space. That he's turning to you and saying, hey, would you invite me into that heartache? Would you invite me into that, that broken relationship? Would you invite me into that financial difficulty? Would you invite me into that, that health issue or, or the depression or the anxiety or the divorce or, or whatever it is? Would you let me into the mess of your life? The church, God is not afraid of your mess and the Christmas story shows us that has to be the case. But, but not only that, not only does, does God actually want to be invited into that space, but God actually understands your pain. Uh, that, that Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. See, because we have a God who took on flesh, we, we have a God who understands pain. We have an, a God who understands what it means to be tired or stressed or overworked. He, he gets all of that. And, and not just in a head knowledge sort of way, Right? Like God the Father for all eternity, he, he's all-knowing, so he understood what sin and brokenness would be like. 
But because Jesus came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, he actually knows what it's like from an experiential perspective. See, the, the difference between sympathy and empathy is this. To have sympathy means you understand and acknowledge another person's feeling. Now, it's more about feeling compassion or, or pity for another person than anything else. But, but what empathy does, empathy takes an extra step. Empathy says, not only am I going to recognize and understand your emotions, not only am I going to mentally comprehend your pain, I'm going to choose to share that emotional experience with you. That when you empathize with another person, you genuinely feel what that person is feeling as though you experience it yourself. And see, what happened 2,000 years ago in a stable in Bethlehem, it was the ultimate act of empathy. That because of the incarnation, we can never look at God and say, God, you don't understand my pain. You are too infinite, you are too other, you are too just God to know what it is like to be in my shoes right now. Because what God would do is he would turn to us and say, no, you don't understand. Because I became a man, I walked in your shoes just so that I could empathize with you. The church, you do realize there is not a single pain point in your life that you can walk through where Christ has not already been there ahead of you. Are you feeling rejected this Christmas? Jesus has been there. Uh, John 1.11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That Jesus was rejected by a family who did not accept that he was savior until after his resurrection. Uh, his hometown who did not believe he was even a prophet and an entire people group who failed to recognize when the Messiah was closer than they could imagine. Are, are you dealing with grief? this Christmas season? Like, like real pain deep down at the heart level because of, of a loss of someone or someone who, who used to be here this Christmas, but it's not gonna be here this Christmas. Jesus has been there. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. That the very human heart of Jesus broke at the death of a friend that he loved dearly. Uh, financial struggles, Jesus has been there. Uh, again, Jesus was raised by, by two teenage parents who were dirt poor. That, that he grew up knowing what it is to not have enough. Uh, so much so that at the end of Luke 2, when uh, Jesus' parents are going to the temple to offer sacrifices for him, uh, they, they basically, they can't afford the sacrifice. They can't afford a lamb. And so there's sort of like this government support system where they, they opt into it. And because of that, uh, they can offer two doves instead of a lamb because that's a cheaper option. Um, uh, unanswered prayers, Jesus has been there. Uh, the, the night before the cross, Jesus falls on his knees and he turns to God the Father in prayer and he says, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. In other, way, in other words, um, he's, God, Jesus is turning to God and saying, God, if I can not have to go through pain tomorrow, if I can not have to experience the suffering of the cross, that, that would be really nice. That is my prayer to you. And Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, ends his prayer and he says, amen. And God, the Father, the first person of the Godhead says, no, that is not my will for you. Uh, anxiety. Well, the, the same night, right before the crucifixion, um, Jesus is so stressed that the capillaries in his skin burst open and he sweats drops of blood. 
Uh, it's a real medical condition we now know as um, hemat it's like saying a Greek word, uh, hematidrosis. Uh, and we only have uh, recorded accounts of that today in a modern setting uh, in death row inmates the night before they go to their execution. Uh, the herd of betrayal, Jesus has been there. Uh, Judas Iscariot, who, who was Jesus' disciple for three years. In other words, he was a man who saw every miracle, heard every teaching, was there, were in his hands when he was passing out bread and fish to people and it was being multiplied in his hands. He experienced all of that. And yet he chose to uh, betray his rabbi and his Lord for a bag of silver. Uh, loneliness, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness alone being tempted by the devil. Uh, injustice, Jesus faced two courts who both judged him guilty of crimes he did not commit. Uh, physical pain, this one's pretty easy. Uh, Jesus died the most painful death the world has ever known. So much so that the word excruciating, it literally means in Latin, from out of the cross. The church, Jesus knows your pain. He understands your suffering. He, he is not separate from that part of your life, but, but he actually has walked through it ahead of you. And look, what that means for us tonight, this Christmas season, is that whatever the pain in our life is, whatever the mess in our life is, we can actually go to God with that. And because He has empathy towards us, because He understands that pain, He can comfort us that he, in a way that He would not be able to if it was not for the incarnation. To finish the rest of Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of that, as a result, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The church, you can go to God in your pain. You, you can go to God in the middle of your anxiety or your, your depression or your diagnosis or, or your divorce, or whatever it is. And he promises us that he will comfort us. He will walk through it with us and he will not be separate from our pain. The church Christmas is not about a helpless baby accidentally being born in a stable. And I'll finish with this and um, the band can start coming up. It's not about Mary and Joseph. It's not about a star. It's not about some wise men, it's about God coming down from his throne in heaven, humbling himself and stepping into our mess, our brokenness, our pain and our sin. And ultimately that means that Jesus does not stop by taking that first step into our pain. He doesn't stop by taking that first step into our mess. He, he keeps on taking one step after another and he walks all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he takes the consequences for all of our brokenness. That the verse in Philippians finishes with, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, church, the, the reason that Jesus is born in a wooden manger in a stable 
is because one day they're gonna nail him to a wooden cross. The reason he was wrapped in swaddling cloths is because one day they would wrap him in burial cloths and they would roll the stone in front of the tomb. The reason he was surrounded by sheep and shepherds in his birth is because one day he would be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for us. That Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, the mess of us all, the brokenness, the pain, the, the, the heartache of us all. So look, church, I don't know what your pain is this year. I don't know what it is that makes your Christmas messier than you would like it to be. I don't know what it is that you wish you could just take away and make things clean in your life. But the whole reason Jesus came is because he wanted to step into that mess. And I'm not promising that he's gonna come and make it all right and solve it all this side of eternity, but he promises that he has borne the consequences for that. And one day every tear will be wiped away, every broken thing will be undone and we will stand in the presence of Jesus forever. All because 2,000 years ago, God became a man and dwelt with us. So Lord, I, I just thank you that you are not a distant God, that you are not a far away deity. You are not standing back at a distance away from the mess of this world, but you are closer than the air we breathe. I thank you that you love us so much that you chose to, to, to let go of all the, the, the authority and privilege that was yours as King of the universe. And instead you came and you dwelt among us in the mess of this life. And so I just pray over every heart here tonight that where there is pain, where there is heartache, where there is suffering, where there is confusion, where there is just a mess of this world, you would come into that space, Lord. And you would comfort us. You would be with us. And, and Lord, I just pray you do a work in our hearts right now. That, that, that where there's this desire inside of us to put up walls and say, God, no, you can't come into this space. God, I'm, I'm not ready for you to see this, this mess yet. I'm not ready for, for you to enter into the space. God, you would just come and you, you would just show us that you don't care. that you weren't afraid of the mess of the stable 2,000 years ago and you're not afraid of the mess of our lives right now. And if that is you tonight, can I just say, it is hard, it is difficult, it is painful to let someone else, let alone the perfect God of the universe into your dysfunction and mess, but, but He knows what it's like and He promises healing in that space.
So Lord, I, again, I just pray that you would come into those spaces of our lives. That we would invite you in. And that you would truly be Emmanuel, God with us. And pray this all in the good, strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. 